when Prussia kept losing to Napoleon at war. Napoleon's French soldiers kept giving the Prussian, what we would now call German, soldiers a spanking, even though the Prussians considered themselves superior in every way, and they possibly were, but they kept losing to Napoleon until the Prussians worked out the difference. And the difference was that the French soldiers obeyed commands and the Prussian soldiers winged it and made it up as they went along. That is a losing recipe in time of war. So the Prussians made a strategic decision to create schools, because it's the old Jesuit principle, get them while they're young. Prussian schools, originally military schools, or military-style schools, and the original teachers were military people, that would train boys and girls up to obey, to comply and obey, and possibly even to wear a uniform. So what they needed was obedience, compliance, and uniformity. And they got it. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, a podcast discussing personal and environmental health. Conversations searching for truths outside of the mainstream narrative. How much can we grow if we expand our thoughts beyond what's approved by the media and social media algorithms? Come with me and broaden our knowledge. Here's some alternate views and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. <laughs> Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. Episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, sourcing locally, finding organics anything like that and you can also share posts recipes food that you're growing your appreciation of nature your bushwalk your beach cleaner anything that helps each other and the planet welcome to part two of my conversation with david edelman he's the lawyer turned freedom fighter last time we talked about the law and how you can protect yourself how you can get out of things like income tax and council rates This time we're talking about the education system. As many of you know, it's a bit of an indoctrination camp. It was created to have good soldiers and then adapted to make people good employees. Turn up on time, wear a uniform, don't question things and do as you're told. And that's, I guess, what all of us see through life. And particularly in the last few years, we've seen a lot of people not questioning the system. So David's going to talk a little bit about what you should do And I think his main advice is get kids out of school. But how do we do that? Anyway, without further ado, here is David Edelman. 
Let's talk a little bit about education. You've written a book about school, No Place for Kids. Where did that passion start for you? Well, I think it was seeded from my own schooling because let's go back to um, my very first school. I was born quite advanced, so that meant that I was a rapid self-learner. All my learning was self-learning. My parents just left me alone. They just they could see from an early age that I didn't need them to learn anything. And when I went to school, it wasn't long at my very first elementary or primary school, as we call them here, that the head teacher was ringing my parents and they went in and they said, we can't cope with this boy. He's learning too fast. Now, at the time, so what happened was I was transferred to another school. Now, I didn't really think it through at the time. I just thought, oh, okay. But then when I went to a much better school and then eventually to a fairly elite secondary school, um, this weird experience of being told that I was learning too fast was added to by the experience of being surrounded by aliens. So now I'm at a school where, although I'm, I'm in the right... I've got this... The level of intelligence is right. Everyone else is, is bright. So I'm in my own... You know, I'm in the right peer group, but now the hormones are kicking in and we're no longer that friendly towards each other. We're being encouraged to compete against each other for exam and academic excellence. And now <clears throat> the hormones are kicking in. We're all boys and down the road there's a girls' school and all of a sudden all the boys are obsessed with all the girls at the other school. And I was a slow developer. Even though I was a quick developer intellectually, I was slow sort of hormonally and, and physically. And I'm just still me. So I'm the 13-year-old, 14-year-old version of me was still like 9 or 10, socially and, and sort of hormonally. Whereas now I'm surrounded by young men. I was still a boy, and these are young men. So, And the teachers were also aliens because... They weren't interested in me. They just wanted the version of me that they were referring to by the surname, never, never David, I was only ever Edelman. They wanted Edelman, A, to behave, B, to conform, B, to comply, and B, and, oh, hang on, A, that was ABB, wasn't it? <laughs> a, to conform. Uh, yeah, I wasn't obviously not such a quick learner, folks. <laughs> a, to conform, B, to comply, C, to uh, excel, etc., etc. So... But, but not to show up as a young boy with issues that need looking into for various reasons, you know, like alienation and not fitting in and not quite agreeing with the way things are and the way things are done. So long story short, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that I don't belong here. And... It doesn't feel right to be here, but I'm so young. I'm only te early teenage. Where else would I be? So that thought is shoved to the back of your, your head, it's, or it stays in the back of your head. Where else would I be? Don't want to be at home because there's nobody at home because my sisters are at school and my mum and dad are out working. So you make do. So what you do is you decide to excel academically because you know that you can, 
And before you know it, you've got into a posh university and off you go into the world of um, the rat race and success. But there's little seeds of doubt have been sown that all is not it appears to be in the system. And then you go to uh, into the world of uh, legalese or legalese law and you can see that you're struggling because you can't really cope with the day-to-day topsy-turvy of life because you've had an academic upbringing and nobody's ever helped you to manage stress or to manage people. So long story short, again, you quit because the stress is too much and it's, it's just you're not coping very well with it. And you go on the road and then you end up in Spain teaching. And you find that, ah, this feels more comfortable because I'm in control here. I'm the, A, I'm the center of attention and B, I'm in control because they're looking to me for inspiration and for information. And the lesson is over before it pisses me off too much or I get too bored and you can have a breather before the next one starts. And it's, and it's a different animal to, to office work. But something happens that makes me, that brings up these lurking doubts. I'm teaching English to the Spanish. They're, most of them are young. They're not school kids, they're, but they're, they've left school and they're polishing up their English so that they can offer English as a, as a, as a competence for, for a better job than they would get without English competence. And they're bragging about how many certificates they've got and how excellent their English is. And I'm saying things like, okay, so let's start from basics. What's your name? And they go, okay. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute. They don't even understand the basic question. And it turns out that when I speak English the way I'm speaking to you, they've, they just don't understand a word. Because I'm using a, my mouth in a way that it's not recognizable to their ears. Because... What we're not taught at school, amongst the many, many things, is that language is, amongst other things, a series of sounds, recognizable sounds. And those recognizable sounds are only recognizable if you were brought up with them. Now, these Spanish students have not been brought up in an English-speaking environment, and they've been trained in English by Spanish natives who equally have not been brought up in English-speaking environments. So none of them, whether a student or teacher of English, none of them recognize English sounds. And because you need to recognize a sound before that you can reproduce or recreate it, recreate it, it basically means that their English is zero, useless. It's flatlined. But they've got all these certificates. So I'm thinking, ah, academic excellence equals zero competence. It's a mathematical equation. And I'm doing the same in Spanish the other way around. They don't understand my Spanish because I haven't been brought up in a Spanish environment. So my Spanish is also zero. And it took me five or six years to bring it up from zero to hero. 
That's how long it takes, roughly. It probably takes a lot longer, but I'm actually, one of my gifts is languages. Uh, I, I actually, I, in my hubris, in my arrogance, I thought it would just take me six months, but it took me six years of living, constant exposure and study to bring up my Spanish from zero, dead, inanimate, to active and alive. So, hmm, interesting. I then come back to England, and long story short, I'm still teaching, but now I'm teaching the card game that I picked up at secondary school, which is bridge. And I'm teaching it at, at a bridge club. Manchester Bridge Club, as it happens, my hometown, but it doesn't matter, it could be any bridge club. And I've now decided that the best way to teach anything is not to teach it. So the best teachers don't teach because they are fully conscious of the fact that every minute you spend teaching is a minute lost to learning because the learning process is an active process. Whereas while I'm teaching, you have to go passive. Therefore, there is no active learning. And there is no such thing as passive learning. There is just passive memory. And memory and learning is not the same thing. Now, that is true for anyone over seven. Yes, when you're below the age of seven, you can osmotically absorb your mother, mother's language between the age of naught and seven. That's because you're in an, uh, a delta state, a, a trance-like state. Your consciousness has not evolved. So you're not conscious. So you are literally breathing in your mother's language. But once you get to the age of seven, then it's just repetition, exposure, repeated exposure, and active practice. So bridge is an activity, and there's the clue. And I've realized that in order for them to learn, I have to expose them to the activity known as bridge. So that's what I do. And I can see how frustrated they are becoming. And I'm thinking, ooh, this is not working out. And they put their hands up to say, David, what do I do next? This is a bridge contact. And I say, why are you asking me? And they look very confused and sometimes even irritated and sometimes even angry because they've paid a subscription to, for me to teach in inverted commas. And my response to that is, why are you asking me? And their response is, well, you're the teacher. And my response to that is, well, you're the learner. And I'm not convincing hardly, I'm convincing hardly anyone that the only way to learn is by doing, trial and error, making mistakes. So this is the other thing that I'm realizing is that people are A, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting dangerous territory now, I'm going to go through the alphabet again, so <laughs> let me not do A, B, B. A, they're learning phobic. B, they are, which is based in mistake phobia, they don't, and they are ashamed of themselves, don't want to be seen not to know, and some of them don't want to be seen to know because they're, they're running the program. So you've got the top-down tyranny that we're going to shame you for not knowing, so that's the teacher. 
shaming the student for not knowing. And then you've got the peer group. We're going back to school now. The peer group shaming the student for knowing. Mm -hmm. There's no escape, this shaming mechanism. So I've got these wounded, traumatized ducklings looking to mother duck, mother hen, for inspiration, and I'm, I'm saying, no, 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 don't follow me. If you follow me, you'll remain a duckling forevermore. You need to swim, swim. If you want to become a goose or a swan or whatever ducklings become, I, can, I, I never know that one. It's funny, it's, a, it's one animal that I, I can't work out, right? Yeah, if you want to mature, then you have to swim, you have to... And I say, if I were a swimming instructor... I would not describe a pool and tell you that the safe end the, the safe end is the shallow end and the dangerous end is the deep end. I would push you in. And if you're very, very frightened, I'd just push you into the shallow end. But if you're brave, I'd push you into the deep end and see what happens. And then, worst case scenario, I'd throw you a rope and pull you out if you're drowning. This is not working. They're not getting it. They, they want to be told. They want to be taught as they were at school. And I'm thinking, I'm not prepared to do that. This goes against everything that I stand for. Then destiny, providence intervenes, and I'm offered funding to go to schools. <laughs> Ha-ha, hurrah! At least I can get in to where there's no learning phobia or where the learning phobia is minimal. And sure enough, when I go into schools, boys and girls get it. It's not that they get bridge. They get the idea that they learn by doing. And they relish the classes. They love them. The teachers, on the other hand, hate me. And the very first teacher that took me into a class turned her back on me and was marking books while I was facilitating the card game, which is mini bridge, although that I was teaching bridge to the adults, I had to simplify a card game, uh, which was mini hyphen bridge that the Europeans developed for schools. And I had to simplify even more for the British market, which highlights how lacking in intelligence we are here. And I called it mini bridge, all one word. So I was teaching mini bridge, all one word uh, to the kids. They were loving it. Funding kept coming through. Well, actually, it was finite funding. And, but it, it became obvious that, A, the kids love to have fun. B, card games are fun. And C, oops, we're in trouble here because teachers are being shown up because there's clearly a difference between a card game and the curriculum. And when the discussion came up to put the card game into the curriculum... Computer said no, except at one, literally one or two enlightened schools. And they only put the card game into the curriculum because they saw it as having social and emotional value. And there was room in the curriculum for some social and emotional activity. And when I put that to the funders, why don't we change the remit from thinking skills and counting skills, which was my original funding remit, to social and emotional and well-being, mental health forum, I was defunded. And that made me think, whoa, 
I can see why this is a threat, but I can no longer see why I would be booted out of the system. I can see why the system would have problems, but, I, but being defunded and booted out, no, that's a step too far. And that led to a massive resentment. I wrote a report to the funders. The report went to Parliament. Parliament did what Parliament does, which is ignore the report. And that doubled down on my resentment. And I thought, I've got, to, I've got to let the public know that they are sending their boys and girls into a system that has no interest whatsoever in, their, in the personal development of their boys and girls. And what little interest it has pays lip service to keep the, the schools out of trouble and to keep parents on board. And that's only the parents that are enlightened. And that's not many. So the, the general public need to know that there is a systemic problem which is way bigger than even I realised. And what happened was I wrote a report that became an e-book and then people said to me, David, that e-book is fascinating. You're highlighting something that nobody's ever highlighted before because they've been too brainwashed and systematised to do it. There was one man that had started doing it a bit before I did, but I didn't know about him. That man was John Taylor Gatto, who had been an, an award-winning high school teacher in New York who blew the whistle on the uh, schooling system in his last 10 years of life, I would say. I think post-retirement. So all credit to him, now, now deceased. God bless him, and I... Um, dedicated the third edition of my book to him. He, uh, and there was another man called Illich, who also wrote a book that uh, talks about the evils of modern schooling. But I hadn't read that far. I hadn't heard of Illich and I hadn't heard of John Taylor Gatto. I was just plowing my own little track, if you like, my own little journey, on my own little journey. And people said, yeah, the e-book is interesting, David, but... If you want to make it into a full-on paperback, you need to fill it out with more anecdotes, with more study, more research, more of everything. So I did that. So from 2016 to 2018, I got reports in from parents and teachers and pupils. And even I, it, it was completely eye-popping. Some of the stories break your heart. Whereas my story was kind of sad, but not necessarily heartbreaking. In fact, it wasn't heartbreaking at all. But it was just sad and frustrating. That was my story. If you had to sum up my journey, sad and frustrating. But some of the people's stories that were coming in were uh, beyond, off the scale. You know, their lives, their entire lives had been ruined by going to school. And ditto the lives of their children. And so the book is a powerful testimony from these people. And I also studied the implications wider, the alternatives to schooling. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Holy Grail, and especially that's been highlighted in the last three to four years, the safety zone and the future proofing that is represented and symbolized by not putting the boys and girls through the system in the first place or to removing them as soon as, which is home education. 
And I know you're going to ask me, so I'll tell you now, <laughs> save you the trouble. Yes, in the UK, it's perfectly legal. It's always lawful, but it's only sporadically legal. It's not legal in Germany. It's not legal in parts of the US. Australia, I can't speak for. I suspect it's very much along the, uh, the US model that it's maybe legal in one state and not legal in another. But it's always lawful because... Your boys or girls, as long as you realize who they are, that they are your offspring, again, the moral code, natural law, no one can take them off you, but they can appear to take them off you if you sign them away. So we may want to go down that rabbit hole a little bit so that people can get clarity on how the legalities work. But in terms of law, your offspring remain your offspring at all times, as long as you know who you are, that you are a man or a woman, that you are the progenitor. Some people say that even the word mother or father has been captured, but let's not go down that road, road for now. Uh, that you are the mother or father of a boy or girl, natural living, breathing offspring, and nobody can dictate terms and conditions to, to those beings without a contract. So we're back to the contractual situation so it's similar to income tax and everything else i have heard that the whole education system was basically created i think back in the times of henry ford to produce robots uh, obedient members of society that would turn up to work on time and uh, do the work and collect a paycheck is that true 110% true. But it wasn't created there, it was just revamped. The original modern schooling model, if you like, started out in Prussia in the mid to late part of the 19th century when Prussia kept losing to Napoleon at war. Napoleon's French soldiers kept giving the Prussian, what we would now call German, soldiers a spanking, even though the Prussians considered themselves superior in every way, and they possibly were, but they kept losing to Napoleon until the Prussians worked out the difference. And the difference was that the French soldiers obeyed commands and the Prussian soldiers winged it and made it up as they went along. That is a losing recipe in time of war. So the Prussians made a strategic decision to create schools, because it's the old Jesuit principle, get them while they're young. Prussian schools, originally military schools, or military-style schools, and the original teachers were military people, that would train boys and girls up to obey, to comply and obey, and possibly even to wear a uniform. So what they needed was obedience, compliance, and uniformity. And they got it. And boy, did they get it, because we know what happened next. World War I, World War II, not just Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars. And it was that model that the British Empire used to roll out uh, to America... And then the Americans typically do what Americans do, take a model and improve on it. 
and commercializing it, uh, commercialize it, use it for commercial trade purposes. The British were using it because indoctrination fitted the Victorian ethic, you know, the work ethic, beautifully. But the Americans used it to uh, improve profit models and profit margins and what have you. And then along came big pharmaceutical industry. Aha! Not only can we get them to comply, but if we tell them not just um, that what we say goes, but, but that there's nothing else then we're going to get them to take medicines for ills that we can create and therefore we have the perfect business model. We've got patients now who just will take the pill for every ill. And it's, this, is the, this is the, I call it the cycle of codependency. You know, you've got not just compliance, obedience and, and conformity and uniformity, but you've got abject ignorance and lack of intelligence. And the recipe, well, it's delicious. So that when you create something called the Spanish flu, which was simply rolling out, the Spanish flu and COVID are identical. It was a rollout of injections for the military of microbes, not the virus, because viruses allegedly, well, viruses don't exist. Um, what, are the, what are those microbes called that can infect you? Um, parasites or no, yeah parasites and also um, oh, very frustrating we'll come back to it but they are they're in our body it's, some people call them germs let's call them germs oh, yeah 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 bacteria bacteria thank you mm -hmm. crikey right so they injected bacteria into soldiers which caused pneumonia they also switched on the uh, radio waves, which eventually led to the BBC and, and radar. So in 1918, you've got bacteria being injected. It was, I think it was um, meningitis bacteria. So that's a vaccine trial on soldiers. And then you've got the rollout of radar or radio, which led to the BBC, round about 1918. The result, mass deaths. So what they do is they give it a name because they resented Spain for not having joined in the First World War. So they called it Spanish flu. Well, flu, influenza, influence from the radar. It was nothing to, it certainly wasn't, you know, it was, and then they create this model of in germ, germ infection and bacterial infection. Apparently there was some kind of shedding back in the day that if you were very, very recently injected, you could possibly um, infect someone, but only if you were very, very close to them physically and recently injected after that. You know, so that's a prototype of shedding. And I have to admit that I didn't believe in shedding until, until it started happening to people whose um, opinions I have faith in. So the schooling led to the health model and the health model has led to the COVID model, and it's all intertwined. Therefore, if we can dismantle the schooling model, we can dismantle the health model and the military model and the tax model, we can dismantle everything. So that's why, although I put schooling on the shelf for two years post-COVID thingy, 
uh, Hovis, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm back reminding people uh, when I do these general talks. So now I've, I'm now, I can't ignore the, the schooling, which is all part of the indoctrination, which is all part of the neuro-linguistic programming, which is all part of now it's subliminal messaging. And the schooling model has taken away people's ability. Well, it's given people um, this receptivity to indoctrination. Uh, on the one hand, that's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin is the inability to, uh, to mentally defend the resilience that you need to defend against uh, the systemic processes. So in a nutshell, people cannot think for themselves. And that's because essentially there are other factors, of course, but essentially they've been to school for way too long. And as this recent episode of someone, a six-year-old being nasal sprayed against his parents' wishes, the danger of schooling is now off the scale. It's off the charts. It's not just... It's not just moral, it's not just indoctrination and capture of the brain. If the injections and the nasal sprays contain certain nanotechnology, and we know that they do, how do we know what that technology or what, what do we believe or not believe that that technology is capable of? Is it capable of existential wipeout? Is it capable of blocking any soul progress any connection to source is it I, mean, I can only ask we don't know yet but it's not worth taking the chance or coming down to the mundane level is it simply a sterilizing agent so that children of the future will not be able to have humans they will only be able to take pod derived offspring in other words transhuman offspring not human offspring because they they will be disabled from you know so everything's on the table and it all sounds very cataclysmic and dramatic and that's because it is not because i believe it is because it is uh and please those people who think i'm expressing all i'm doing is expressing opinion i'm actually translating all my research and all my observations of myself and others right here, right now in real time. And if you don't accept it, well, you're, you have every right not to accept it, but please don't dismiss it out of hand. I think the best thing people can do, at least if they're, if they're sceptical about what you're saying, is to not completely dismiss it because there's been plenty of things that... Three years ago, I would have been asking questions about, and then they come true. So there's really everything should be on the table because, as you said at the beginning, they've lied about everything. Another thing I wanted to say was that so we have you know television, Hollywood, um, and education. Then our parents went through the same education; they watched the same TV. So there's multiple layers of uh, us being indoctrinated into a certain way. Is this where the group think actually begins? Yeah, very much so. By the way, let me just add something to what to the previous uh, section. Um, 
it's because I think it's, it's potentially quite powerful. If I am wrong, and somebody else said this recently, and I, I really love this, if people like me are wrong, the worst case scenario is we look like bananas and we sound like bananas, but we don't care. I'm not interested whether someone further down the line says, do you know what you said turned out to be utter nonsense? I hope you, you realise that. And I'll just say, it's a fair cop. But it was a sincere belief at the time. That's the worst case scenario. And we don't care. This is the whole point of being what they call a truther. We're saying what we say because we care about the truth or what we perceive to be the truth Way, 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 way more than we care about our image. But, and it's a huge but, if we are right, then you ignore us at your peril. So if you do the cost-benefit analysis, you will realise that it will pay more to at least listen than to ignore. Right, that said, yes, back to your point about... um, Yes, it, it basically means that, that they have the, the system, the, the, the group thing is basically implants, and the implants have come from so many different directions. And it's so carefully done that those who are implanted or captured have no idea that they've been captured. So the worst scenario when you're imprisoned is that you genuinely believe from the top of your head to the tip of your toe that you are free. So our role is to somehow remind people, and you've made a very good point about raising the issue of, hang on a minute, if if they lied to us about A, I'm doing the A, B, C again, (laughs) right? I must find another way of doing this. If they lied to us about A, why would they necessarily be telling us the truth about B or C or D? And that is a very powerful argument because most people, however entrained into groupthink, would admit, however reluctantly, that yes, maybe they did lie about weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) Maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe they did lie about some of the dangers of COVID. You know, you might be able to pull a little bit. Yeah, maybe the death rate of COVID turned out to be not what we were told it was going to be. And maybe, maybe, maybe that was a lie rather than just an honest error. Maybe. But we're, cl- but we're clutching at straws here. We're, we're, we're hoping the great hope that they will see the light. And some will, but many won't. Um, so we need other strategies. We need, um, to be honest, some of them are, are quite tragic. We need, you know, we, we're not pointing out the deaths, but to some extent we need the tragedies to unfold so that the lies are exposed. Because, as I said, I think in the previous podcast, we can't really expose the lies directly because we don't have credibility, because we are not part of the enlightened ones. Who are the enlightened ones? They're the ones with the professorships, with the great qualifications, with the status, with the 
celebrity, with the credentials is the word. All we've done is we've done research that goes against all of that, which makes us potentially dangerous. So why would you trust someone that you see as dangerous, far right, extreme? We're back to the heresy now. So if you've been convinced because they're peppering the, uh, the, by the propaganda, and it is a propaganda machine, as we know, which, uh, as Goebbels said, tell a lie big enough and repeat it often enough, and it becomes mundane, everyday truth. So what they've done is use the word COVID, 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 over again, and even though it seems absolutely preposterous to us, knowing what we know now, which, as you say, was conspiracy theory, but on the yellow boards that we um, do in, in around the UK, and we've got some Americans interested in what we do, so we go out onto the streets using yellow boards and handing out the truth paper, which is the light paper, which has an Australian version, I believe. Mm. We have one of the yellow boards that says, conspiracy theory plus six months equals truth. And that is as good as it gets for now. But the thing is that it may get to a point that we only have one month to get the truth out, you know, or even one week. So, but it is what it is. And if people are destined to, to perish, as the Bible suggests, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Bible basher or pusher, but there's some amazing kernels, nuggets. And the one I'm referring to is Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, which, quote, says, my children shall perish for lack of knowledge. And I quote that as often as I can remember it. So what we're dealing with, we're dealing with a situation in which the hubris and the arrogance and the trauma and the groupthink and the Stockholm Syndrome and the propaganda and the fear all conspire to make people turn their back on truth. And the outcome of that is that they perish or that they suffer and perish or just suffer. And some of them suffer so much that it actually turns things around. But there's, you know, all we're asking is that they don't turn their back on us. And, but if they do, the Bible says it all, they will suffer the consequences. And that's not a threat or a promise. That's just, it is what it is. People like yourself, uh, we all experienced people turning their back on us instead of the ones who were actually doing the harm to them, locking them up and shutting their businesses down and forcing injections or else they couldn't have any freedom, but then they hated the people who were trying to point it out. So strange Well, times. yeah, when, when I was out on, in the early days of the Hovis nonsense or the COVID thing, when I was out on the streets of the north of England, and then event, uh, that was it. I did some other places, but that was my main territory. I would have people come up to me afterwards and say, what do you know? Are you medically qualified? Are you a doctor? Uh, and, and it showed basically the position, you know, that I had no credentials to say what I was saying. I was taking chances. All I had was my own personal research. And some evidence from some very brave souls who knew more than me and I had found their research, come across it and was translating it for the, 
for the masses. What I say, masses, for the 15 or 20 people that were listening to me on the streets. And, uh, and I had no answers to that. No, I'm not medically qualified, but what I would like to have said, and sometimes I did say, was that the medically qualified are the ones that know least about health. But obviously, when you're in a very tense situation, that's just going to be fuel to the fire. Just as I knew less about law than, pe than most people, because I was legally qualified. And I was hoping upon hope that, uh, that when I touched upon the law in my street speeches, someone would say, oh, do you know, are you legally qualified? But no one ever did. So <laughs> I, I never got the chance to say, actually, I am. Thank you. <laughs> but I never did, um, which is a bit of a pity. Um, but there you go. But the thing is, now, we're giggling, and, and, and I think this is the way forward. We, we need to find, amongst all this crap, we need to find the, the funny spots, the... the, the we need to be able to, A, to laugh, oh, I'm doing it again. Right, <laughs> firstly, to laugh at ourselves, and secondly, to laugh at insanity. I think we need to avoid laughing at the insane, although there was an incident recently at uh, our outreach of the light paper where one of the jabbed group thinkers approached some of us, not me, I was on the other side of the road, and was having a, grow, a go at about three of us saying, you, people like you killed my granny. Now, in the end, I do believe that one or two of our group did start laughing. And he could easily be, he, could, he wouldn't be blamed for thinking that they're laughing at him. Uh, I can't say any more about that because I didn't actually hear, I could vaguely see in the distance what was going on, but I can't say any more. But I think all I can say is that we should laugh at ourselves as much as possible, laugh at the insanity, point out the, the, the laughability, the, the um, ludicrousness of the insanity, and hope that just by doing that, it helps wake people up or at least gets them to scratch their heads more than they're doing. Mm. There was a, a comedian in Australia, actually, who had a little skit that went for two minutes. It was... Uh, a drunk person making the COVID rules and, uh, you know, how you, could, you couldn't have a game of cricket in your backyard with five friends, but you could go to the cricket with 20,000 people and watch 26 or 22 people on a field playing cricket together. And it was just how the, the disparity of the rules were ridiculous. And they just actually admitted, or Fauci just recently admitted, that there was no science behind the six-foot rule which everyone knew anyway, I would have thought. But um, it just goes to show there is quite a bit of, if you have a light-hearted look at it, it was quite ridiculous. They just made up a metre well, and a half. That's where yeah. you have to stand apart. Well, in fact, there is science behind the two metres rule, but it's not the science that they talk about. It's the science of electromagnetics. And our heart energy goes out on average, two meters. So when you do anything in a social environment, you are showering each other with loving energy. So there was science behind that two meter rule, but it was the perverted, satanic, Nazi criminal science of we're going to stop these people from being in each other's aura.
We're going to stop them from reassuring each other. We're going to we're going to maximize the stress and not allow a stress release valve, which is what you get when you are close to people physically. Mm. And I'm going to throw in something that if I don't do it now, it might easily forgotten, uh, be forgotten. It's, it's not something that you'll ever hear anywhere else, to be honest. Um, and I'm taking the opportunity to get it out there. I normally reveal it in my talks but I think it's time to reveal it on a wider level. When you sleep with someone, you have to sleep at least two meters apart. Why? Because healing takes place within your aura. And if someone else is in your aura, neither you nor they can heal. So it takes place within the aura during the night. So yes, by all means, kiss and cuddle or do whatever you feel is appropriate before bedtime. But at bedtime, in other words, sleep time, separate and heal. You won't hear any... I've never heard anyone say that. And I don't know where I got it. And maybe it was a direct download. I don't know. Or maybe it was just my common sense kicking in, putting two and two together. I don't know. And I don't care. The point is that people need to know this. So if you want to hear, if you are diseased, stressed, one of the easiest routes forward is find your own sleeping space. That's fascinating. Now, obviously, uh, let, let's go back. And I've dragged you off course a bit. So let's go back to, let's bring it back to school. This is one of the things, of course, that they will never teach you in school. You know, how do you sleep? Can you imagine a teacher saying, uh, morning, David. Um, how did you sleep last night? Well, I was uh, a nightmare or two. Yeah, but no, no, no. But did you have your sacred space for healing while you sleep? Uh, this is this is humour in itself. This is laughable. I'm, I'm I'm using this scenario to highlight how divorced, how estranged schooling has got from health and well-being. And the reality of what boys, girls, men, women actually need to thrive. Schooling is an anti-human. It's an abomination. It's actually, let me, let me hit people hard now. What I tell people is that knowing what I know and knowing what they probably ought to know by now anyway, is that sending a boy or girl to school or keeping them in school is a crime against humanity. And since the main crime is committed by the schooling system itself, then let's, let's meet you halfway and say it's aiding and abetting, it's being complicit, com yeah, complicit in a crime against humanity. And again, the skeptics may say, oh, no, but it's, it's, you've got to send people to school. Well, we can discuss that in a minute. Or that's what people do and how are they going to get on in life if they don't? All nonsense, all is revealed in my book. It's all hearsay. What people say about school is hearsay, that it's not a place where you get an education, it's a place where you get an indoctrination. And now, way worse, if they're going to jab your, your boys and girls and nasal spray them without your knowledge or consent, way, way worse. Indoctrination is the last of your worries. Because you can, as some parents do now, take them home and 
deprogram them on a daily basis. This is what some parents are having to do because for some reason they can't look after them at home. And I believe that once a boy or girl gets to 13, once they get to teenage, they're autonomous. They don't need supervision. You can leave them at home. That's my opinion. It's like Gillick competency, which is like they're old enough to give consent to a jab. So they're certainly old enough to stay home and wash a few dishes and, and mow the lawn and, and see their friends who are also at home and learn from life. What I'd personally like to see is teenagers roaming the streets and roaming the parks all day, every day. And then eventually younger ones because the teenagers are looking after the younger ones. That's when I know, that's when I will know that sanity has finally arrived on planet Earth. When the schools are closed and the parks and the streets are full of kids having fun. Yeah, and I guess that's what we used to do before screens were around. We were never home when, when we were still I went to school, but when I wasn't at school, I was never home. And if you see, if you go to a developing country, it is the older kids looking after the younger kids and they're out riding bikes and playing football and soccer and and having a good time together. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's why I'm not as deranged as I could, as I could have been if I'd have only, only ever just gone to school because I had a very active social and sporty life before school really hit home. So I was already pretty solid, pretty solid by the time I got to school because, as I say, Generation X, we didn't have the devices or the gadgets. TV was only part-time. It used to switch off at 10 o'clock, and it only came on at 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock. No mobile phones, uh, no nonsense. So my and this is why the 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 resistance is made up of fifty something and sixty somethings, because we haven't we, we haven't been destroyed. We may have been got at, and some of us may be struggling to resist, but ultimately we do resist. But the younger ones, particularly the under thirties, have been destroyed. Mm. And, and so there's a polarization amongst the under 30s. They are either completely what I would call insane, but obviously they would call me insane. So there's a polarization. We're both insane. And it's a question of whose pers- perspective you trust. And there's a small minority who are born to be sane. So in other words, they're like um, a new version of the Generation X which was my generation, and they are free thinkers. You can't get at them. They are too strong. Mm. And you can't send them to school because they will bring the school, school system down just by themselves. But rather than go, but rather than go through that, they will, they will be kept at home. They're being born to parents who are awake. And I saw this recently at a, at a freedom camp in the summer in England. And I, I was observing the profile or the demographic of there was about 200 kids on site. And I looked at them and I thought, these are all awake. Every single boy or girl is awake and conscious. Let's say conscious rather than awake. And, and I was looking at their parents and I'm thinking, the parents are not like the kids. The parents are awake. In other words, they are savvy to what's going on, but they're not conscious like the kids. So this is where you've got the two 
descriptors, awake and conscious. And when you are both, I call it, you've been purple-pilled. So you've got the, the blue pill for not awake, not conscious, uh, the red pill for awake but not conscious, and then the purple pill for awake and conscious. And the kids were conscious, and obviously they're going to wake up as well because they're born to awake parents, and the parents were awake. And I thought, ah, so these awake, normally sort of blue-collared parents because the white-collared parents are almost never awake because they've been sucked into the system. Mm. When you wear a blue collar, you can, keep, you can keep your own thoughts to a large extent. So the blue collars are giving birth to these conscious kids, and I was absolutely wowed because I couldn't see an unconscious kid. They were all light shining in their eyes, mature beyond their years, you know, um, you know, modesty apart, little mini-me's, because that's exactly who I was. Light shining through my eyes, mature beyond my infant years. And that's why a lot of these kids relate to me, and that's why I've been sent in to help recruit. Uh, some of them don't need it because their parents have already done the right thing but recruit for the new earth by making sure that they never go or if they do go, they come out as soon as possible for the new earth because there's a soul recognition. So, you know, I have a remit at the moment to get the book out. It sold a few thousand copies, but like I was saying with my course, really I want it to hit thousands and thousands and tens of thousands. And there's an audio version coming out soon. We've done it. We just need to... It's been audited and edited, but, it, but the final version of edited audit needs to happen. Be, but it should come out in the next few weeks um, because the message is enough of this crime against humanity. Let's um, get the boys and girls, first of all, to the safety zone uh, where they can express themselves and stay out of medical danger. Mm. I have an 11-month-old, actually, and you can see with young babies, as soon as they're born, they don't judge anyone. They're amazed by everything. And it's only when adults feed them certain narratives that they start to change. Because I take her outside and she's just wondering about everything, wanting to touch every leaf, every every tree. And, uh, you know, she loves other kids automatically. She doesn't have any judgment of where that kid is from or anything. It's just such a, a, a natural way to be. And you can see that has been stamped out of us as we, as we grow older. Well, absolutely. Um, yeah, these, these, the, the essence of these boys and girls, as you say, is awe and wonder. And my journey reflects this journey from one world into another because when I was younger... I didn't have the draw towards nature. I was in nature quite a lot, but it didn't do that much for me. Then I was drawn, sucked in full on into the vortex known as the matrix. And I lost most of the beautiful things like gratitude. Uh, I, I start to be, be, I became judgmental now. What I didn't start out judgmental. So I went on a journey from good into evil and I've come back out in the other direction, back to where I was. So out of the evil. So now, now I'm in a beautiful part of the world, Kent, and I can feel the gratitude of being in Kent. 
I can feel the gratitude of, of being free because I've freed myself of the indoctrination, the experience. I can see the value of my experiences because it's led me to have the authenticity and the eloquence. So I can put it into words. I can, I can feel it. I can feel the journey, you know, from um, tyranny towards democracy, from evil towards good. I can feel it. I've done it. I've been there. So that um, when people read the book, they can feel the truth of what I'm saying. They can feel the authenticity. The book is written as if I were talking because I don't do academia. I'm not an academic writer. I don't use long words. And when I do, I don't repeat them for quite a few pages. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I, I want people, uh, and I've had readers as young as 10, 11, 12, you know, who've enjoyed the book. Um, and it's inspired some kids to tell their mum and dad, mum, uh, it's, it's gone round schools as well. Mum, dad, um, I don't want to go to school. I've just read this book and I've realised that, you know, this is, this is wrong. So it's a, it's a game changer and a mind changer. And those people out there who need persuading and don't blame them. I used to be fundamentalist about, you know, schooling, get them out and don't ask questions. But for those who say, well, yes, I kind of agree with you, David, but so it's, it's the but people. Then I have a remedy for boys and girls who are stuck in the classroom. So this brings together the two worlds, the law and education. So it's something that I don't know if I met, uh, sent you an email about, but it's, about, it's this school protection card, and there's a video, I explained the video on the website, and it basically gives boys and girls stuck in the tyranny some kind of shield, and it's all written down on a card. So in a nutshell, Paul they can simply start asking questions. If they feel got at, humiliated, threatened, abused, they can use the system against itself. And there are three ways to do it. The first way is to go into commerce and say, um, you, you appear to be giving me an order, sir or miss. Is that correct? Yes, that's an order. At this school, you can't say no and you can't ask why. This is the new ethos, by the way. In the, in the, back in the day, it was just the odd tyrant that used to say that. Now it's the generalized school ethos. You can't say no and you can't ask why. That's, that, that's why I call it the danger zone. I, I don't do it. This is not frivolous. So on the card, it says it recommends that you get an invoice for compliance with the order in commerce. The school is a commercial entity. It's a branch of the bank. It's taking the natural energy, time and energy, and focus and concentration of boys and girls and converting it into cash. Cash for the teachers, cash for the school, and cash for the bank, and cash for the system. Because it churns them out 10 years later as human resources. So this is, and it refers to them at teacher training conferences as the product. And it refers to them in the auditing process in schools as units. This is all fact. This is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. So using these facts as our starting point, we use remedy and commerce as our shield. Right, sir, miss, 
Here is my family invoice for compliance with that order. So it could be £500 per order or it could be £500 per minute in detention. And by the way, detention is no longer called detention. Guess what it's called? It's called reset. (laughs) Boys and girls are having the negativity of schooling, of schooling tyranny, wiped off the agenda. It's now reset and it's all incredibly positive. So all the humiliation, the bullying, the relabeling, the the regendering, the indoctrination, it's reset. Mum, Dad, guess what? I had a reset today. They're coming home proud of it. We used to come home ashamed of being detained, of being given lines, of being given black marks. Now, It's a reset and it's something... Well, certain black marks, obviously... It's the prototype social credit system. It's grooming them for social credit. And once social credit goes digital, uh, a la China, then democracy over. Finished. Freedom finished. And if they bring in five-minute cities, they're calling them 15 minutes, but they'll be five minutes, then finished. But they're being groomed for the reset. So that's remedying commerce. Now, there's an, uh, another remedy which only occurred to me about a year ago. This whole thing only occurred to me a year ago. I just woke up one day around about Christmas of last year, the year before last, in other words. I thought, hang on a minute, I've got all these remedies and I haven't applied them to schools. I had my OMG moment. So that's remedy in commerce. R- remedy number two, statutory remedy. In the UK, we have modern slavery legislation. You will have it in Australia. And now the, the boy or girl is, is given the instruction of ask the teacher whether they are being given a choice. Please, sir, miss, are you giving me a choice? No, in this school, we ha- you have no choice. Oh, then in that case, are you not familiar with the modern slavery legislation uh, as created in Section 1 but defined in Section 3, Subsection 5, Modern Slavery Act 2015. Interestingly, the 2015 is the year of the Criminal Justice and Courts Act, which puts police officers in their place as well. This Modern Slavery Act is being used against the tax authorities by lawful operatives that got wind of it through me, I believe. I don't want to sound too arrogant that I'm the source of all, the font of all knowledge and wisdom here, Um, but all I'm saying is that I hadn't heard of this before I started doing it, but it doesn't matter. This is my ego kicking in, possibly. It doesn't matter. As long as we all use it, it doesn't matter who did it first. Right. So this Modern Slavery Act is exploitation, is coercing. It's the British version of coercion because the Canadians have got coercion, but we don't as a criminal offence. We have exploitation. It's inducing, using threats or force, a person to provide a service. Now, Homework, detention, um, sitting in a corner, keeping quiet. These are services. These are services of compliance. And if they are, if they're part of an exploitation package, because you are, you're in a situation where you can't, you're in a, you're in a closed environment. You're locked up. And that's another thing. Children are locked up in all schools cctv cameras locked they can't get out they need permission to go to the toilet and when they go to the toilet the toilets are closed locked 
They're going home with urinary, urinary tract infections. They can't go to the toilet as often as they like. And this is fact. Right, so that's remedy number two. Statutory criminalized exploitation. Obviously, it's going to kick off. What narcissistic teacher or narcissistic Stockholm syndrome teacher would relish the idea of being called a criminal? So they're going to take you, they're going to frog march you to the head. It's all going to kick off. Well, remedy number three is the International Convention on the Rights of the Child, United Nations, Article 28. Treatment of discipline in schools of boys and girls should respect human dignity. What schools would want to be seen to be in breach of international United Nations conventions? So you take your notes, you have a, a, a fellow school pupil, or you take a secret recording, spy, spyware, and you've got something that now you can hang over the school itself, Okay, if you insist on A, B, and C, then we will take this footage to, not the BBC, because the BBC will just destroy it. We'll take it somewhere. We'll go public, probably Facebook or something. You know, we'll go on to social media. We will shame this school. So there you go. So we have remedy. Obviously, so that with that remedy, it meant that I could meet parents halfway who were sceptical of my fundamentalist approach. Obviously, they're less sceptical now because, of, what, because of, of the medical danger that the anti-Nuremberg principle medical rollout is being, is being used in school. And if they call a lockdown quickly, an emergency lockdown, the shutters come down. Of the, they've been doing trial um, lockdowns in schools, emergency lockdown drills. They've been doing them in schools. And they're telling them, they're indoctrinating them that they could, first of all, their parents are not trustworthy and that they could in, infect their parents so they'll only be allowed home when it's safe. So when it's ideologically safe or when it's medically safe. And they've been told to, if they, you know, if they get a certain green or red or light, whatever the colour of the light is, they need to bring sleeping bag and a toothbrush to school. That doesn't sound like uh, a school looking after its boys and girls to me. That sounds like a, a school um, preparing them for some cataclysm in which when the dust settles, all hell will have broken loose and we have to pick up the pieces. Well, it, now it's, it's about prevention now. It's about preventing the calamity from taking... The calamity will take place, but it's about getting as many out of the danger zone before it actually t will take place. Well, I have about a million questions. Maybe we need to do another a follow-up on schooling. Just to finish up, I guess, uh, I know here in Australia, some the, the, here they have different versions, but some that I know of have called like bush schools, where uh, groups of parents have got together and taken kids out of school and they they spend, you know, a little bit of time learning in the morning and then they they go off and learn how to light a fire in the bush or how to find food or whatever it is, or they play sport. So it's all more outside-type schooling. Do you have that sort of thing in the UK? And 
Do you have any recommendations for how people could find that if they're worried about taking on kids themselves at home, that there is help? There absolutely is. There's a growing number of home education, home educating networks. The, the interesting thing is that a lot of home educators are woke. And the reason they're, the reason they're home educating is they, they don't like tyranny. So they're anti-tyranny, although there's a massive crossover between woke and tyranny. But, um, but only a small fraction of the home educators are actually awake which is incredible but true. But what we've had for some time are the equivalent of bus schools known as forest schools. You can even go to a forest school within an actual traditional mainstream school. They have forest schooling days or, or sessions. But what we also have here is a potential uh, world template it's something that originally used the well i think it used the word it did use the word school but when i got involved i said you've got to scrub the word out so to prevent the authorities from um from sniffing around we have to abolish the word school we don't do schools we don't do schooling what we do is freedom oriented um learning through doing and learning through being and we have centers of learning, centers of community learning. Lifelong learning center is probably the best expression I could come up with, and it features in the book. The best thing that we can do to bring in a better future is have places where people from literally 9 to 90, as the expression goes, can come along and socialize and learn what they feel they want or need to learn. End of. End of. No programs. No, no prescribed timetables. Nothing. It's, it's people will be there who will be able to help you to learn what you feel you need to learn. People will be there who will, in, will inspire you to learn what you feel that you need to learn, to play with you all day if necessary. I mean, to, 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 it's not rocket science. We can transform this planet in months, literally in months. If we have nine-year-olds playing cards or table tennis with 90-year-olds on a daily basis, we've got nirvana. If we have nine-year-olds or 12-year-olds serving in the kitchen, cooking and serving soup to 90-year-olds, we have nirvana. If we have dogs, cats, horses, whatever, around, hanging around, you know, being, allowing themselves to be stroked, lowering everyone's stress levels, we're in nirvana. Now, that can be set up in months, even weeks. Hmm. But instead of that, we've got people sit, strapped into a seat, literally. It won't be long before they are literally... I think in, in China they're experimenting with electric shock treatment for children. That may be the wrong phrase, but certainly pulses, electromagnetic pulses for children who are showing signs of, uh, of attention deficit. So they've got the headphones on, and the headphone goes beep. If the child drifts off, if the headphones pick up the fact that the child's thoughts are now becoming a bit random rather than focused on the lesson, then it goes, 
to bring the child back to the... That's where we're heading. So we're heading to a future in which the schooling system becomes a transhuman model. And it is already, to be honest, but it'll go to whole new levels. So we're going to have a stark choice, if we don't have it already, between transhuman and new human. And the old human will dissipate. That, that old human will die off to be replaced on one side by a robot, stroke transhuman, and on the other side, a new human. And there is a book, New Human, by Mary Rodwell, um, which she talks about all these gifts and talents coming through with the boys and girls. And I've got back into my new humanity, playing a musical instrument that I never played when I was a kid, playing table tennis that I never played when I was a kid. So I'm reliving... And I, I want, to, want to tell people, again, these are facts because they're, they're true because I'm living them. I'm now in my mid-60s and I'm living the life of a 10-year-old. And if you want to know more, come and see me and ask me privately. What does that mean? It means I'm focused on fun. On, I'm teaching mini bridge and bridge again. I'm playing table tennis and I'm going to be playing it more and more. And recently, <laughs> I had a game against an 81-year-old and he pulverized me he murdered me he's 81 and he's only been playing for four years and the difference is he plays every day because he's retired so it was a full-timer against a part-timer it wasn't an 80 year old against a 60 odd year old it was a full-timer against a part-timer and I said you're inspiring to me even though I'm personally inspiring others I'm not yet quite old enough to be old <laughs> and but he is and and he inspired me, right. And I'm thinking, well, when I'm 80, first of all, I'm, I didn't say this, obviously. I'm going to be better than you. I mean, he's good, but I'm thinking I can be better than that. And also, I will have slightly more mobility. He was quite mobile, actually. He was mobile enough to, to murder me. And um, so that's where we're heading. We're going to have 80 and 90-year-olds murdering 60-year-olds and 20-year-olds at table tennis. That's where we're heading. That's the new human. We're going to have boys and girls seeing things and not being told that they're bonkers. We're going to have beings whose existence was denied by the system showing up and, and revealing that, in fact, they're just like we are, but they were just removed from our reality for whatever reason. Just They're, they're no different to us. Um, if that sounds a bit woo-woo, I'm just, I'm kind of preparing people for what's coming down the pipeline. So better, better to hear it from me um, rather from, uh, you know, someone that you've, I don't know. Anyway, I, I won't go any further than that. But um, so what else? You know, um, natural food. You know, there's no food available in, in the system. It's feed, it's fodder. There's no truth about anything, nothing. And the other, the bottom line about schooling is even if they weren't sadists that made you stand still and shut up for 15 years or sit still and shut up, what they have on offer is just one lie after another. It's just one piece of mind control after another. So there are no redeeming features about the schooling model, none. If there were... I would be, hopefully, honest enough to say so. But I can't see any. 
I can't see any redeeming features. None. So one thing I do accept is that not everyone is ready to see the truth of what I've just said as, as the truth of what I said about law. I get that. I reluctantly have to admit that. But in fact, that actually proves how right I am, if you see what I mean. It proves, it shows evidence that we have been got at, which is why ultimately I have to hold my hands up and say, the fact that you don't get what I'm saying proves me right. It doesn't prove me wrong. There's a delicious paradox. And I've never put it that way before, but there we go. So thank you for not getting or for dismissing me or dismissing me as a crank or a conspiracy theorist, but that actually makes me want to do and say much more for much longer. So thank you very much. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of hope for the future anyway, and and having this conversation should motivate some to do a little bit more and perhaps get some others thinking outside of the square that they've been looking into for so long, like we've all moved on from at some point. Yeah. I, every Well, they say that everybody will get to where they're going eventually, and I think that used to be true, but I'm not exactly certain of that anymore because of the onslaught of this new technology. Mm-hmm. I think this new technology might well be able to sabotage the journey that we, that we are all on, except for those that turn their back on the technology and on its mind, body, and soul fodder and, and the shackles that it, that it creates. And this is why... The tyranny is accelerating because it's a race against time. Can we liberate ourselves before we are imprisoned forever? It's, it's, the, it's a Bond movie on steroids. You said it before. Television was only on for a few hours back 50 years ago. Then the internet comes along. Now people have technology in their pocket 24 hours a day just about. So the the ability to pull away from the propaganda and the indoctrination has gotten harder. And the sweeteners for being divorced from reality, whereby you can have virtual sexual relations, virtual sporting relations, virtual safari visits, everything virtual in the metaverse, is going to draw a huge chunk of the population into that world irredeemably. And what we have to be is philosophical. We have to say, and I think it says it somewhere, maybe not in the Bible, but someone said it at some point, the road to heaven is a a very narrow gate that you pass through. It's a very narrow gate. And people like me have to be very philosophical for those who are only listening and not watching, you'll see that I've obviously pulled my hair out already, you know, because there's not a lot left. But um, we have to be philosophical and accept that those who are destined not to get through that narrow gap won't get through and they are lost. But there will still be a number who will be found. And so the journey of people like me and you, Paul, is on finding ourselves and helping others to find themselves and the way forward. 
We don't need the whole planet doing this. In fact, with five and a half billion people jabbed, we're only down to two billion that can do this. But two billion is enough. Well, not that long ago, the planet only had half a billion on it. So two billion, even one billion, it's enough. One to two billion, it'll do. We can build on that. So, you know, as long as those two billion um, find their way, and they will, but more importantly, create environments in which those coming through are safe to come through because it's not us that will build the future. We just we just destroy enough of the, the past and the present so that the future can build itself and be built by the new boys and girls coming through, the new humans coming through, because it's their future. So we are the gatekeepers for the new future. We're future-proofing on behalf of the, of the children coming through. And my book and my talks and my time and energy is my contribution to that cause. And just to repeat, I know you haven't asked me, but I'll preempt you. The book, for those who didn't, who missed the first few minutes or the last segment, the book is called School, No Place for Children. You're listening to the author. So that's a promotion, unashamed promotion. But it's a rare book in the sense that there's only two or three authors around the world that are writing or have written books like this. You know, in other words, completely anti-schooling. Not let's improve this system. No, 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 no. Those books are ten a penny. This book, as with the book of Illich, or books of Illich, I think it was Stefan Illich, but don't quote me, and John Taylor Gatto, uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction, and my own book, School, No Place for Children. These are anti-schooling books. End of. Destroy the school model, start again. So it's available on Amazon. Uh, if you don't like Amazon, then you can get it from the website, from me directly in paperback, so that the website is thepeopleslawyeruk.com. It did have its own Facebook page, School No Place for Children, but such is the power of this message that yours truly was thrown off Facebook four years ago with no questions asked, just woke up one day and I was off Facebook. So I would like to direct you to the School No Children Facebook page, but I can't. And that is testimony to the power of the message. That's censorship right there. And a, a great place to end, but I think uh, we're going to have to revisit this sometime in the future and, and go deeper onto this education thing or what we call education anyway because there's a word thing there too. So thanks a lot, David. That's a, a lot of time you've given and it's a lot of information for people to take in and hopefully they get something out of it. Uh, hopefully they will. I appreciate your input, Paul. You've been a, a brilliant um, interviewer because you've been very laid back. Uh, asking some fantastic questions and waiting patiently while I do my little monologues, which not all interviewers can do. Oh, well, so I'm, I'm here doing... to listen to you. <laughs> well, I wish more interviewers had that mentality. So good on you, as they say, down, down your, your way. Um, thank you very, very much. For all those listening that are struggling with my message, I do get it. 
But please, I'm reiterating myself now, the very fact that you're listening to this means that on some level, on some level, you're ready to hear it, and on some other level, you're ready to take some form of corrective action. So let's stick with that thought. hope you enjoyed part two with David Edelman and the conversation on school and education and what you can do get, getting your kids out of school, what the options are, why you should get them out of school and at least to get you thinking about steps that you can take to reduce their indoctrination or their brainwashing in the system that we are all led to believe is there for us. So you can find more about David at his website and I'll supply a link to that in the show notes and hopefully any other information that he shared in this podcast so until next time I'll see you later don't forget to download the Fair Food Forager app it's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic local supporting small businesses reduced plastic packaging anything really to help support you and the planet and you can share good news stories learn from each other and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more please subscribe where you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review it especially if you're on apple podcasts and share it with your friends thanks again to ash groomald This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye.